Warning. Please note that this podcast contains strong language and touches on many topics that may not be considered appropriate for a work environment. If you choose to listen to this podcast where you can be overheard, we are not responsible for the consequences of your decision. You've been warned. episode primarily Black Women's History, as we go into women in entertainment. My name is Bill. And I'm Noelle. And this is We All Have the Next Chromosome. We're going to get the business out of the way before we dive into the topic, because we have many people that we want to mention, and we could be all day mentioning people. We actually had to cut people from the list, because this would take forever to go through. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you wanted a 12-hour podcast of the amazingness that is everything we owe black women in terms of entertainment, um, we would be here forever. We could make that podcast. It would not be difficult. Not at all, because we didn't even really go through the major week-long throwing out names, but we're going to catch some names that we talked about a little bit last week and this week, but before we do that, we're going to get down to business. And the business is all the business that we need to, to run this podcast. You can find us on the web at www.xchromosomepodcast.com. That's where you can link all of our social media. That's where we've got our Facebook, our Twitter, our YouTubes, our Patreon, where you can go through and help us out by throwing a few bucks our way. And also a direct link to go through and give us money directly through PayPal. We also have a merchandise on there, so if you buy some swag from us, it'll help us with our coffers. So next February, we might not have to go through a hiatus of... A month and a half. Yeah, of a month and a half, because someone's school doesn't wait until January 31st to give the last document he needs to go through and put his tax return in. Um, That's besides the point. But yes, go visit our social media, interact, and you can also go through and send us an email. Our email address is write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. Write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. Send us your questions, comments, concerns. If there's anything you want to let us know about, we'll read Again. it and we'll listen. Yeah, if you want to tell us uh, your story, but you don't have to wait until uh, Pride Month or whenever to send us life experiences. Um, we'll ask you if we can read them if they seem to be a thing that other people would benefit from. And if they're not a thing that other people could benefit from, we'll still reply and let you know yeah. what we can do. Yeah, we will still talk to you. Um, we we would love more interaction besides the Facebook page, which is super busy. I don't know about Twitter. I do not do the Twitters. The, the Twitter is 
just a bunch of me crying or um, forwarding these mostly. Um, okay, so okay. it's like the podcast, but without me adding salty commentary. <laughs> what is that? I, I mean, I try to give salty commentary, but I'm not that salty. Your default mode. You've got nothing. You have you have not the reserves of salt. No. I'm Italian. I can throw some spice in there. Speaking of other things you can do for the podcast, it would be awesome sauce. Yes, I'm that old that I use awesome sauce unironically. Um, if you like the show and you want other people to know about the show so that they too can like the show, if you would uh, like it and subscribe on what is it, Apple <laughs> Podcast and uh, Spotify. Are we on Stitcher? We're on Stitcher. I think the only thing that we're not on is Pandora. Well, nobody uses Pandora anymore. It's the MySpace of streaming. Um, it, because it's, so, it's a pain in the neck to actually get onto Pandora, so people, a lot of people skip it. It's a, yeah, it's a trash uh, format anyway. I hate it. Um, I hated it before there was a Spotify to compare it to as a better product. Um, but if you subscribe, leave a review on whatever platform. This includes Facebook, because uh, we do have the Facebook page. If you leave a review there, it will help people find it. Yes, uh, leaving a review on the Facebook page helps to fight the Facebook algorithm so that when we post important stuff, because we post a lot of news in general, um, it'll go to the people that need to see it. Well, or who want to see it. Um, but also need, because I really cannot be the one-woman army driving fucking men's rights incel trolls to the Facebook page to hate-review it for not listening to it, um, and thus having them realize that there's a whole podcast they could hate-listen to. Yes, bring us those hate downloads. So, <laughs> sweet, sweet hate downloads that just make us stronger. Especially uh, on Apple Podcasts, where... You can write a full review. Tell us your favorite dinosaur. Tell us why you think Skyline is the best and all the other various things that we had spoken about in fun in the past. Or yeah, you serious. It's up to you. You can give us, yeah, but you can also feedback us on the on our website and through our email and we're more likely to take those seriously because you didn't rage post on a Facebook page. Um, but the reviews on Apple Podcasts help fight those algorithms too. Yeah, and while we don't want advertisers per se, um, it would nice to, it would be nice to be able to tell them to fuck off. <laughs> and no, we're we're not going to stop saying fuck, um, and we're not going to stop talking shit on the patriarchy. So, I mean, if an advertiser says, "Here's money, continue to do your shit," we'll Fine. gladly take it. <laughs> but yeah, especially if it's a product we can believe in. There are some awesome products out there. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but there's a bra company that if you try their bra for 30 days and you don't like it and you send it back, they wash it and donate it to shelters. Sweet, sweet. Uh, so if you know that policy, you can look up that bra company. Um, but like the Food Network, we're obscuring the label. Um, so things that we're not obscuring is this week's topic, women in media, women in entertainment, historic, what, we'll do that again, historic women in entertainment. And as we mentioned, we had people that we put through and 
because of missing last month's Black History Month, we chopped the list down to Black women in entertainment. Um, there's white women in entertainment that we could talk about, but it could be forever. So we're going to focus on our list today. Yeah. Um, also, we mentioned uh, Hedy Lamar last week. Um, yes. She was kind of our crossover to get to here. Um, she did some groundbreaking shit. Yeah. In we, terms of entertainment, like being the first on screen orgasm, which wasn't fun at all, which involved, she, she got stabbed with a pin to make those faces. So, I mean, if that doesn't describe the straight female sexual experience, I don't know what does. And we mentioned a couple of ladies that we're going to speak today because of stem. sexual experiences, you getting stuck with a pen, you need another boyfriend. Shh. Well, it's, um, it's more that commentary from the spousal gallery. And it's more the not just getting stuck with a pen. It's the enduring something for uh, the male gaze and pleasure and then getting castigated about it. By the same men who enjoyed the fuck out of what you went through to get the film. Yeah. It, unsatisfying for her. It, it's the whole women have to fit into blur. Yeah. Put that, on a whore complex. Angst, angst, angst. That's the start of That's the beginning of it, so to speak. So we're going to start. We have our list. And the first person on the list is Billie Holiday. Yes. Um, her non-stage name is Eleonora Fagan. If you don't know who Billie Holiday is, I don't know what to do. Um, she won four Grammy Awards, all of them post... I can't pronounce the word. After death. Posthumously. Posthumously. Um, for Best Historical Album. Yeah. Um, she was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1973. Lady Sings the Blues, a film about her life starring Diana Ross, was released in 1972. We're pulling all of this from Wikipedia, by the way. Toss a coin to your Wikipedia pages. They say they are the foundation of the podcast world. They um, are the valley of plenty of information. Yes. Uh, she's the primary character in the play Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. The role was originated by Renee. Rini Upchurch, or Renee, and was played by Audrey McDonald on Broadway in the film. In 2017, Holiday was inducted into the National Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame. She uh, was evicted from her home at age 19 for being pregnant. Um, her parents kicked her out, so she moved in with her older half, her older married half sister, to stay in Baltimore for Eleonora to, to for her to stay in Baltimore. Oh, no, her mother was kicked out of out of her home at 19. So her parents were were unwed and teenagers. Um, her father abandoned the family. Clarence Holiday abandoned the family to pursue a, a career as a jazz banjo player. Uh, she grew up in Baltimore and had a very difficult childhood. Um, her mother often took what are called transportation jobs, serving on passenger, passenger railroads. She was raised by Eva Miller. Uh, her mother, Sarah's mother-in-law, Martha Miller. And so basically the first decade of her life, she was a f basically a foster kid. Um, Billie Holiday's autobiography, Lady Sings the Blues, first published in 1956, is sketchy on details of her early life, but much was confirmed by Stuart Nicholson in his 1995 biography of the singer. 
One of the things that are still an issue with things today, um, when she was mostly listed, uh, mostly a commercial singer and things of that nature, she was arrested for possessions of narcotics, um, in which when she went to trial, her lawyer would not come to the trial to represent her. And mm-hmm. uh, the district attorney spoke in her defense saying, if your honor, please. This is a case of a drug addict, but more serious, however, than most of our cases. Miss Holiday is a professional entertainer and among the higher rank as far as income was concerned. So basically, she went to jail for drug possession, um, which even today is an issue. Yeah, I mean, we're still jailing black people for drug possession um, disproportionately. I think even in 1947, if she was a white woman, she wouldn't have been jailed. Or arrested. Yeah. Um, the thing she is uh, most famous for, one of her, well, the song she should absolutely be most famous for, is when she was recording with Columbia in the late 1930s, she was introduced to the song Strange Fruit, a song based on a poem about lynching written by Abel Muropol, a Jewish school teacher from the Bronx. Um he used the pseudonym Lewis Allen for the poem, which was set to music and performed at teachers' union meetings. Um, it was eventually heard by Barney Josephson, the proprietor of Cafe Society, an integrated nightclub in Greenwich Village, who introduced it to Holiday. She performed it at the club in 1939 with some trepidation, fearing possible retaliation. She later said the imagery of the song reminded her of her father's death and that this played a role in her resistance to performing it. For her performance, she had... Waiters silenced the crowd when the song began. During the song's long introduction, the lights dimmed and all movements had to cease. As Holiday began singing, only a small spotlight illuminated her face. On the final note, all lights went out, and when they came back on, Holiday was gone. Holiday said her father, Clarence Holiday, was denied medical treatment for a fatal lung disorder because of racial prejudice. Not a surprise. And that singing Strange Fruit reminded her of the incident. It reminds me of how Pop died, but I have to keep singing it. Not only because people ask for it, but because 20 years after Pop died, the things that killed him are still happening in the South, she wrote in her autobiography. Um, It was recorded for Commodore Records on April 20th, 1939, remained in her repertoire for 20 years. The song sold well, but didn't get any airplay. Although Gabler, um, the owner of Commodore Records, attributed that mostly to the record's B-side, Fine and Mellow, which was a jukebox hit. It was equivalent of a top 20 hit in the 1930s. And it, um, Holiday's popularity increased after Strange Fruit. She received a mention in Time magazine. I opened ca- Cafe Society as an unknown, Holiday said. I left two years later as a star. I needed the pre- prestige and publicity, all right, but you can't pay rent with it. She soon demanded a raise from her manager, Joe Glazer. And the, she wound up going into having only one major film, which had issues because... Of McCarthyism, um, because they, the producer Jules Levy and the scriptwriter Herbert uh, Biberman were pressed to lessen Holiday's role, along with Louis Armstrong's role, to avoid the impression that black people created jazz. The attempt I mean, failed because Biberman was listed as one of the Hollywood Ten and sent to jail. And most of what she filmed was cut out of the movie. Of course. Yeah, that's this is the thing about history, especially with entertainment history, because with entertainment history, there's more things written down, and you hear see more of the 
horrors, issues that they go through in their time, which sucks. Yeah. But we have to learn from it so we don't repeat it. Ugh. Her conviction, her narcotics conviction, caused her New York City cabaret card to be revoked. Yep. Because cabaret cards were cards were all for goody-goody people. They were for people who didn't get caught. Yep. My internet has slowed down. One moment. Ugh. I mean, she's amazing. She is a she's a she's a rock star. Um, she's distinctive. She's had influence on other on so much other artists. How things are. Um, sadly, hmm, let's see list of awards and nominations. Sadly, she passed away before she got all those awards and recognitions. Yes. Let's go through and bring up someone else that passed away last year, but is a part of entertainment as a writer and poet and various things. Um, Chloe Anthony Wolford Morrison, born Chloe Ardelia Wolford, a.k.a. Tony Morrison. Tony Morrison. She is, um, <clears throat> one, she's a fellow Ohioan, uh, which is cool. We have a lot of awesome people, but. Pulitzer Prize winner. When, yeah, she's a. She went to Howard University. Uh, she earned a master's in American literature from Cornell. She became the first black female editor in fiction at Random House. And then her most celebrated work was made into a film in 1998. That would be Beloved. Um, in 96, the National Endowment for the Humanities selected her for the Jefferson Lecture, the U.S. federal government's highest honor for achievement in the humanities. She was on that that year. She was also honored with the National Book Foundation's Medal of Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2012. On May 29th, she was uh, President Barack Obama presented her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 2016, she received the P, the the PEN Saul Bellow Award for achievement in American fiction. She again hugely influential. And we skipped over 1993. Where she won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Yeah, so she's she's amazing. Um, she was never afraid to comment on American politics and race relations. Yeah, she was just as much as a, an activist as she was a writer. Um, in writing about the 1998 impeachment of Bill Clinton, she claimed that since Whitewater, Bill Clinton be, was being mistreated in the same way Black people often are. <clears throat> After um, There's a big um, lead into this. After all, Clinton displays almost every trope of blackness, single-parent household, born poor, working class, saxophone playing, McDonald's and junk food loving boy from Arkansas. She's not entirely wrong, sadly. In April 2015, speaking on the deaths of Michael Brown, Eric Garnier, and Walter Scott, three unarmed black men killed by white police officers, Morrison said, people keep saying we need to have a conversation about race. This is the conversation. I want to see a cop shoot a white unarmed teenager in the back, and I want to see a white man convicted for raping a black woman. Then, when you ask me, is it over, I will say yes. <clears throat> After the 2016 election of Donald Trump as president of the United States, <laughs> Morrison wrote an essay, Mourning for Whiteness, published in the November 21st, 2016 issue of The New Yorker. In it, she argues that white Americans are so afraid of losing privileges afforded them by their race that white voters elected Trump, whom she described as being endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan in order to keep the idea of white supremacy alive. She did not identify 
as a feminist. She did not identify her works as feminist, which you now you think, well, why are we talking about her? Because she, she was. Um, in 2012, she responded to a question about the difference between black and white feminists in the 1970s. And there was a difference. There's still a difference. White feminists are terrible. I'm trying not to be one. I'm trying to be an intersectional feminist, which, again, why the podcast? Womanists is what black feminists used to call themselves. They were not the same thing. And also the relationship with men. Historically, black women have always sheltered their men because they were out there and they were the ones most likely to be killed. W.S. Kataswari writes in Postmodern Feminist Writers, 2018, that Morrison is, exemplifies characteristics of postmodern feminism by altering Euro-American dichotomies, by rewriting a history written by mainstream historians, and by her usage of shifting narration in Beloved and Paradise. Beloved and Paradise. Kataswari states, instead of Western logocentric abstractions, Morrison prefers the powerful, vivid language of women of color. She is essentially postmodern since her approach to myth and folk folklore is revisionist. Not revisionist, revisionist. Different. Basically, she didn't call herself a feminist, but deep down, she was. Yes. Um, the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, includes writing by her. Visitors can see her quote after they have walked through the section commemorating individual victims of lynching. The quote is, <clears throat> And oh, my people out yonder, hear me. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck, put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it and hold it up. And all your inside parts that they'd just as soon slop for hogs, you've got to love them. The dark, dark liver, love it, love it, and the beat and beating heart, love that too. More than eyes or feet, more than the lungs, more than lungs that have yet to draw free air, more than your life-holding womb and your life-giving private parts, hear me now, love your heart, for this is the prize. Princeton University has the has um, the Toni Morrison papers as part of their permanent collections. They are held in the Manuscripts Division, Department of Rare Books and Special Collections. Um, there's a little stress uh, about her offering them to Princeton instead of Howard University, uh, at, which, is a, which is a historically black college and part of the HBCU group. Um, colleges founded so that black people could actually access higher education because segregation. Um, February 18th in Lorain, Ohio is Toni Morrison Day. Um, she was on Oprah, wasn't she? Oh. Oh, the, her movie, the movie adaptation of Beloved was co-produced by Oprah Winfrey, who had spent 10 years bringing it to the screen. She stars as, Oprah stars as the main character, alongside Danny Glover, Paul D., and Thandie Newton. It flopped at the box office. A review in The Economist suggested that most audiences are not eager to endure nearly three hours of a cerebral film with an original storyline featuring supernatural themes, murder, rape, and slavery. And here we are in 2020 in a post-Black Panther world where um, supernatural themes, uh, murder, and slavery were, you know, part of all of that. And it blew the doors off the box office. Um, Oprah Winfrey selected Song of Solomon for her book club. As a result, um, an average of 13 million viewers watched the show's book club segments. As a result, when Winfrey selected Morrison's earliest novel, The Bluest Eye, in 2000, it sold another 800,000 paperback copies. Because the Oprah stamp usually means bestseller. Um, 
she Winfrey selected a total of four of Morrison's novels over six years, giving Morrison's novels a bigger sales boost than they got from her Nobel Prize win in 1993. The novelist also appeared three times on the show. Winfrey said, for all those who asked the question, Toni Morrison again, I say with certainty there would have been no Oprah's book club if this woman had not chosen to share her love of words with the world. Uh, she wrote a libretto on Margaret Garner's life story of for an opera based on Margaret Garner's life story, which is also where the basis the novel Beloved is from. Um, it was performed by the New York City Opera in 2007. She wrote a book called Remembered. It's a children's book to mark the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Uh, she was an Andrew D. In, from 97 to 2003, she was an Andrew D. White professor at large at Cornell. In 2005, the University of Oxford rewarded her an honorary Doctor of Letters degree. Um, she was the second of the Louvre's Grand Invité program to guest curate a month-long series of events across the arts on the theme of The Foreigner's Home. In 2006, New York Times Book Review named Beloved the best work of American fiction published in the previous 25 years. Let's move on to our next person. Yeah, we could talk about Toni Morrison forever. And now we're going back in time, way back in time. To someone else that is, I actually didn't hear about until uh, today, but it turns out that uh, she's very important when it comes down to Hollywood history. Dorothy Dandridge. We're not going as far back in time as I thought we were. The next one is further back. Um, I had my links out of order. Again, staying I, in, staying yeah, with I, people born in Ohio. <laughs> we didn't do it on purpose, but she's super important. So one of the things about Dorothy Dandridge is that it, in, the, in current times, she's getting more and more brought up as someone that is important, especially after the... Um, Black exploitation era, um, as such as people like Cicely Tyson, Jada Pinkett Smith, Halle Berry, Janet Jackson, Winnie Houston, etc., um, had started going through and acknowledging her contribution contributions to the image of African Americans in African Americans in motion pictures. So things, a lot of her history is being brought up even more and more as people are realizing just how much of a influence she was in mm -hmm. film. Or just in general. Um, November 1st, 1954, she became the first black woman featured on the cover of Life. Um, this is from her performance in Carmen Jones, which is an all-black musical film adaptation of Oscar Hammerstein II's Broadway musical Carmen Jones, which is Carmen updated to a World War II-era African-American setting. Um, she was nominated at the 27th Academy Awards along for, for Best Actress alongside Grace Kelly, Audrey Hepburn, Judy Carland, and Jane Wyman. Grace Kelly won. She became an, uh, Dandridge became an overnight sensation. At the 1955 Oscar, at the 1955 Oscar ceremony, Dandridge presented the Academy Award for film editing to on the waterfront editor Gene Milford. Ah. Uh, uh, she was involved in a lawsuit uh, with the publication, the quarterly publication Confidential for libel. She accepted an out-of-court settlement of ten thousand dollars. This was in nineteen fifty-seven, so ten thousand dollars is a large pile of cash. Um, Maureen O'Hara also testified at this at this trial. 
Um, basically, they sued a gossip rag in one. She was in a ton of things. I just went through and used an inflation calculator. Just to give people an idea of what the equivalent of would be. What cost ten thousand dollars in nineteen fifty seven would cost nine hundred twenty thousand. I'm sorry, my there was futs on my screen. Uh, ninety two thousand seventy dollars and twenty seven cents in two thousand nineteen. So that's like almost ten times more than now than then. so. So. A, a large pile of cash. Um, having developed an interest in activism due to the racism she encountered in the industry, she became involved with the National Urban League and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which everybody knows more colloquially as the NAACP. But yeah, her legacy is huge. Um, she is referenced in Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, uh, Wesley Snipes, drag queen Noxima Jackson, Dreams of playing Dorothy Dandridge in a movie about her life and work. No, are we are we on? still live? Our backup is still. Is our backup running. still running? Yep, backup running. Okay. Um. Hopefully, we don't lose anything. Um. Halle Berry produced and starred in the HBO movie introducing Dor- Dorothy Dandridge, for which she won the Primetime Emmy Award, Golden Globe Award, and Screen Actors Guild Award. Yes. Wesley Snipes is in none of these films. Uh, when Barry won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her role in Monsters Ball, she dedicated the moment to Dorothy Dandridge, Lena Holm, and Diana Carroll. Both Dandridge and Barry were from Cleveland, Ohio, and were born in the same hospital. Dorothy Dandridge was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1984 and appears as the most prominent figure in a mural on an exterior wall of Hollywood High School. A statue of Dandridge, designed by Catherine Hardwick, honors multi-ethnic leading ladies of the cinema, including Mae West, Doris Del Rio, and Anna Mae Wong. Recording artist Janelle Monet performed a song entitled Dorothy Dandridge Eyes on... Is it there now? Wikipedia's pronouns might be behind. Um, on the 2013 album The Electric Lady with Esperanza Spalding. Um, in the February 26th episode, episode of Blackish Sink or Swim, Beyonce is referred to as the Dor- Dorothy Dandridge of her time, citing the star power Dandridge wielded in her day. So there you go, encapsulated. That is how important Dorothy Dandridge was in her era. She was compared to Beyonce, or Beyonce was compared to her for comparable clout. I want to bring up one part of her history because it's going to go on to our next person, too. Um, okay. Yes, this is something that was brought up a lot in Black Hollywood in the past. Um, in '95, Dendridge accepted producer Samuel Goldwyn's offer to star in his forthcoming production of Porgy and Bess, which would become her first Hollywood film from, from the previous five years that she was working. Her acceptance of the role angered the Black community, who felt the story's negative stereotyping of Blacks was degrading. Uh, so. This is something that's being brought up because of our next person that we're going to talk to, talk about, I'm pulling up the link again. Who is Hattie McDaniel, who was born in 1895 and died in 1952. Everybody knows Hattie McDaniel, even if it's just from a pop culture clip about not knowing how to birth babies. She played Mammy in Gone with the Wind, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress the first Oscar won by a Black entertainer. 
Um, in addition to acting in many films, she recorded 16 blues sides between 1926 and 1929. Ten were issued. Was a radio performer and television star. She was the first black woman to sing on radio in the United States. She appeared in over 300 films, although she received screen credits for only 83. She has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. One at 6933 Hollywood Boulevard for her her contributions to radio, and one at 1719 Vine Street for acting in motion pictures. In 1975, she was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame, and in 2006, became the first Black Oscar winner honored with a U.S. postage stamp. Yeah, one of the reasons why I brought that segue in is because McDaniel had, as McDaniel got more and more famous, she got more and more criticism with the Black community. Groups such as the NAACP complained that Hollywood stereotypes not only restricted Blacks to servants' roles, but also often portrayed Blacks as lazy, dim-witted, satisfied with lowly positions, or violent. Uh, One of the things that she had mentioned, which is a quote, um, McDaniel characterized these challenges as class-based biases against domestics a claim that white columnists seem to accept. When she reportedly said, why should I complain about making $700 a week playing a maid? If I didn't, I'd be making $7 a week being one. Basically, they were, somewhere to basically attacked her as being an Uncle Tom. And the, the location of her Oscar is still unknown. However, the rumor has it is that it's packed at Howard University somewhere. Her, uh, the, the victory for the, the role in Gone with the Wind, um, they, while many Blacks were happy over McDaniel's personal victory, um, a lot of stuff went on, um, ah, Gone with the Wind, I'll just, again, we're depending very heavily on Wikipedia for most of this. Uh, the competition to win the part of Mammy in Gone with the Wind was almost as fierce as that of Scarlett O'Hara. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt wrote to film producer David O. O. Selznick to ask that her own maid, Elizabeth Elizabeth McDuffie, be given the part. McDaniel did not think she would be chosen because she had earned her reputation as a comic actress. One source claimed that Clark Gable recommended that the role be given to McDaniel. In in any case, she went to the audition dressed in an authentic maid's uniform and won the part. Um, the The NAACP worked to remove a lot of epithets and alter scenes that might be incendiary and that were historically inaccurate. So, good. Is Um, that where dress for the job that you want comes from? I don't think so. However, consistent with the book, the film's screenplay also referred to poor whites as white trash, and it described these words equally to characters black and white. So, just let that sink in. One of the first black members of the Screen Actors Guild, Mm -hmm. an NBC radio broadcast to raise funds for the Red Cross Relief Programs, for Americans being displaced displaced by devastating floods, she gained a reputation for generosity, lending money to friends and strangers alike. In 2004, Rita Dove, the first Black U.S. Poet Laureate, published her poem, Hattie McDaniel Arrives at the Coconut Grove in The New Yorker, which has since been, which has since presented it frequently during her poetry readings as well on YouTube. Uh- Most importantly than any of this, um, Hattie McDaniel was the most famous of the Black homeowners who helped to organize the Black West Adams, Los Angeles, California neighborhood residents who saved their homes. 
Yeah, the judge basically said this lawsuit is bullshit and threw it out. In 1944, um, an attorney and the owner and publisher of the California Eagle newspaper represented the minority homeowners in their restrictive covenant case. Time magazine, in its issue of December 17, 1945, reported that, quote, spacious, well-kept West spacious, well-kept West Adam Heights still had the com- the complacent look of the days when most of Los Angeles's ar- aristocracy lived there. In 1938, Negroes, willing and able to pay $15,000 and up for Heights property, be- had begun moving into the old eclectic mansions. Many were movie folk, actresses, Louise Beavers, Hattie McDaniel, Ethel Waters, etc. They improved their holdings, kept their well-defined ways, quickly won more than tolerance from most of their white neighbors. But some whites, refusing to be comforted, had referred to the original racial restriction covenant that came with the development of West Adams Heights back in 1902, which restricted non-Caucasians from owning property. For seven years, they had tried to enforce it, but failed. Then they went to court. Superior, Superior Judge Thurmond Clark decided to visit the disputed ground, popularly known as Sugar Hill. Next morning, Judge Clark threw the case out of court. His reason? It is time that members of the Negro race are accorded without reservations or evasions the full rights guaranteed them under the 14th Amendment to the federal Constitution. Judges have been avoiding the real issue too long. <laughs> so, Among the, the interesting things there is that once upon a time, you could buy a mansion for 15 grand. <laughs> In today's money. That's a long ass time ago. This is where I coughed to death and laughter. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, inflation is a son of a bitch. <laughs> Think about it this way: this is fifteen thousand in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she died of breast cancer at age fifty-seven on October twenty-six, nineteen fifty-two. Okay, so we're gonna move on to someone that we mentioned last week. Someone that we mentioned because of space and STEM, who is near and dear to many nerds' hearts. Many nerdy, nerdy hearts. Yes. All the hearts. How did I not get this one pulled up? I'm a jerk. Here we go. Or I closed it. (laughs) It is time for us to talk about all of the awesome shit that is... Michelle um, Nichols. Yes. She is not only an actress, but a singer and voice artist. She sang with Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton before turning to acting. Everybody knows her as Nyota Ohura in the Star Trek television series, as well as the succeeding motion pictures. Thank you again, Wikipedia. Nichols' role was groundbreaking as a future role model for African-American female characters on American television. She also worked to recruit diverse astronauts to NASA, including women and ethnic minorities. One of the things that she is, during the first year of the series, she was ex- of Star Trek, she was tempted to leave the series and wanted to pursue a Broadway career. However, a conversation with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. changed her mind. She said that King personally encouraged her to stay on the series, telling her that he was a big fan of Star Trek. He said that she could not give up because she was playing a vital role model for black children and young women across the country, as well as other, as for other children who would see blacks appearing as equals. In an interview, she said that the day after she told Roddenberry she planned to leave the show, she was at a fundraiser for the NAACP and was told there was a big fan who wanted to meet her. Nichols said, quote, I thought it was a Trekkie. So I said, sure. 
I looked across the room, and there was Dr. Martin Luther King walking toward me with this big grin on his face. He reached out to me and said, yes, Ms. Nichols, I'm your greatest fan. He said that Star Trek was the only show that he and his wife, Coretta, would allow their three little children to stay up and watch. She told King about her plans to leave the series and said, I never got the chance to tell him why, because he said, you can't, you're part of history. When she told Roddenberry what King said, he cried. She made Gene Roddenberry cry. <laughs> Former astronaut Mae Jemison has cited Nichols' role as Lieutenant Uhura as her inspiration for wanting to become an astronaut, and Whoopi Goldberg has also spoken of Nichols' influence. Goldberg asked for a role on Star Trek The Next Generation, and the character, Guinan? Guinan? Was specifically, Guinan. Guinan was yes, specifically Guinan. created, while Jemison appeared on an episode of the series. What is the super most important thing besides her existence on television and being black in public was as in her role as Lieutenant Uhura, Nichols kissed white actor William Shatner in the November 22nd, 1968 Star Trek episode, Plato's Stepchildren. It is cited as the first example of an interracial kiss on scripted U.S. television. It was seen as groundbreaking, even though it was portrayed as having been forced by an alien telekinesis. <clears throat> on page 197 of her 1994 autobiography, Beyond Uhura, Star Trek and Other Memories, Nichols cites a letter from a white Southerner who wrote, I am totally opposed to the mixing of the races. However, any time a red-blooded American boy like Captain Kirk gets a beautiful dame in his arms that looks like Uhura, he ain't gonna fight it. <laughs> <laughs> During the Comedy Central roast of Shatner on August 20, 2006, Nichols jokingly referred to the kiss and says, What do you say? Let's make a little more TV history and kiss my black ass. Um, Nichols noted in her autobiography her frustration that her assuming command of the Enterprise never happened on the original series. Um, it did happen in Star Trek, the animated series, um, in the episode The Lorelei Signal. She's done a bunch of stuff um she was in truck turner opposite isaac hayes her only appearance in a black exploitation film but she's she's a cultural icon but yes she it's great because she was able to take her work just being in star trek and push it to help with getting more black people involved in nasa for mm -hmm. and things of that nature which as we talked about last week having more black people involved in stem is an important factor for or the future. And unfortunately, her younger brother was a part of the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, if you want to go into, if you want a really good in-depth Heaven's Gate, really good in-depth Heaven's Gate coverage, please listen to the podcast, Heaven's Gate. Be prepared to have your heart broken. Um, but it's a really good podcast. Um, so I'll reference her, them. She's recently announced her retirement from convention appearances. Her last coronavirus withstanding her farewell event is to be held in burbank in may may 2020 robert a heinlein in part dedicated his novel novel friday to her uh, she received an honorary degree from los angeles mission college on june 8th 2010 she has an asteroid named after her and she was in scooby-doo um it is six six eight four one zero nickels um, she's received the Life Career Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, presented as part of the 42nd Saturn Awards Ceremony. Her filmography stretches from 1959 to 2018. Television and video game 
credits from 1964 to 2017, two books, Beyond Uhura and Saturn's Child. Um, she's literally the foundation of so much of current pop culture, um, especially in science fiction. I mean, would we have Zoe and Firefly if there had not been Nichelle Nichols? Probably not. And we all know us, a brown coat fan who's ferociously devoted to that series. Um, yep. We wouldn't have, who's the, the chick on Doctor Who and Torchwood? Uh, I'm, I'm not a Doctor Who fan. I don't know her. Martha Jones. We wouldn't have Martha Jones without Nichelle Nichols. You know, a lot of the women, the, the black women of science fiction of the modern era would not exist if Nichelle Nichols had not stuck it out with Star Trek. Um, and I'm going to say, put a spoilers on this for people that might not have heard it. So just wait about, pause, fast forward about maybe 30 seconds from this point. Um, and the newest doctor is a black woman, Jodie Whittaker. Okay, it's safe now. Okay. Is jo- what? Uh, the, the newest one after Jodie? Oh, uh, oh jo- jo yeah, Martin. the new black doctor lady. Joe Martin. Joe Martin. It, yay. Finally. Still not a ginger. <laughs> Still not a ginger. <laughs> Still not a ginger. That would have been hilarious if they combined. Uh, I'm sorry. They, they should have given like an, a ginger dread or something. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you can't you can have a, a black person with red hair. It happens naturally. Mm-hmm. It's really rare, but it happens. And But still not a ginger. That's correct. Yes. The doctor is still not a ginger. Such is life. Maybe we'll never be a ginger. Who knows? So let's go on to a slightly nerdy person. A person that's known for a slightly nerdy thing, but is known for such much, much more. Um, Uh, She's known for two things, but she needs to be known for other things. Well, I know her. I know her as Catwoman. Yes. A lot of people know her as Catwoman. um, Opposite. Adam West. Adam West. She was literally one of the best parts of the show. Uh, other people know her from singing Santa Baby, which if you have not heard Eartha Kitt sing Santa Baby, go listen right now. I don't care what time of year it is you're listening to this podcast. Go listen. It's amazing. Um, she's incredible. However, there she's also known for to Disney fans as Yzma. Yes. So, in, the, in the Emperor's New Groove. Yes. If you Also, if you haven't seen Eartha Kit as Catwoman, you need to search that immediately. A lot of people. Yeah, we just talked about Yzma. Sit down. <laughs> um, <clears throat> however, however, on January 18th, 1968, she almost burned everything down. We're talking about Eartha. Yeah. Spoilers. We're <laughs> seriously talking. We're talking about Eartha Kit on Vietnam. Um, <clears throat> I'm pulling this from USA Today published February 16th, 2018. Um, but events uh, events as cited when they occurred in the past. Um, in May of 1967, she testified before Congress along with Washington, D.C. youth group Rebels with a Cause on behalf of President Lyndon B. Johnson's juvenile delinquency bill. Because of this testimony and her celebrity, which she channeled into this activision, um, activism, um, Lady Bird Johnson subsequently invited Kit to her Women Doers Luncheon on January 18, 1968, for a discussion of what women could do to help eradicate crime on the streets. Towards the end of the luncheon, 
Ladybird asked the room of 50 women from groups such as the Association of Colored Women's Club and the League of Women Voters, including a few governor's wives, for their comments. Kit raised her hand and told the First Lady of the United States exactly what she thought. Juvenile crime was in part a pushback against her being drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. Quote, Boys I know across the nation feel it doesn't pay to be a good guy. They figure with a record, they don't have to go off to Vietnam. You send the best of this country off to be shot and maimed. They rebel in the street. They will take pot and they will get high. They don't want to go to school because they're going to be snatched off from their mothers to be shot in Vietnam. Kit continued, Mrs. Johnson, you're a mother too, although you've had daughters and not sons. I am a mother and I know the feeling of having a baby come out of my guts. I have a baby and then you send him off to war. No wonder the kids rebel and take pot. And, Mrs. Johnson, in case you don't understand the lingo, that's marijuana. Her comments stunned the First Lady. Some media reports erroneously stated that Lady Bird burst into tears. Women in the room ran to the microphone to defend the Johnsons and level outrage at Kit. The cultural and political backlash was swift. The Washington Post reported at the time that President Johnson had Kit blacklisted. According to Broadley, Kit alleged that the White House, which had sent a car for her, didn't arrange for a car for her departure, and she had to catch a cab. Unable to get jobs in the United States, Kit was forced to perform in Europe until she returned to America in 1978 to headline the Broadway musical Timbuktu. It was later unveiled by the New York Times that the CIA, prompted by the Secret Service in 1968, had kept a dossier on her. Quote, it was really heartbreaking to hear her. It was really heartbreaking to her and very upsetting that her own government turned on her for something as simple as just giving an honest response to a question, said Kit Shapiro, Eartha Kit's daughter. And that was really something, I think, that she never let go of, that disappointment. Kit's response to the dossier was, I don't understand what this is about. I think it's disgusting. But that was, uh, again, here it is, the angry black woman is what, um, you know, she was typed into this. And we all know that harmful stereotype is still punishing black women today. Lost in the kerfuffle of whether or not Kit disrespected Ladybird was the context of Kit's comment about poverty, crime, and the war. Women celebrities like Lena Horne, Nina Simone, Mahalia Jackson, and Josephine Baker were engaged in public activism during this era, similar to the activism of Harry Belafonte, Muhammad Ali, or John Carlos and Tommy Smith, but they didn't fit the mold of what an activist looked like, and so often these stories didn't get told. Eartha Kitt's story didn't get told by journalists as a form of activism. It got told as sort of as this sort of like interpersonal gendered conflict instead. And this goes back to Orlando Jones. This goes back to Colin Kaepernick. Gabrielle Union. Yeah, yeah. Um, standing out, um, upsetting the system gets them punished and you know it is very quick to sweep criticism um under the rug with things like angry black women or shut up and play or all of this so the problems she faced still exist today in activism and that's why we need intersectional feminism and that's why we need to uplift black women's voices because they've been dying to be heard it's time they stopped being silenced. Just to bring this up quickly, um, turns out that she actually won a daytime Emmy for the voice of Yzma of the University of School. Yay! Wrong lever, Kronk! Wrong lever! <laughs> I mean, she's a meme, too. If you say wrong lever, Kronk, 
everybody knows what you're talking about. Yes. And that's how you get America to notice things. Memes. Yeah, that's a that's apparently the the currency. Um well if it can't be meme, did it really happen? Fair. Um however, we plan on having an episode next week, even though Ohio is closed. And Ohio is closed. Tom Hanks has coronavirus. The NBA has suspended the entire rest of the season because one player has tested positive. The world is ending, but as long as Bill and I can still get to our microphones, there will be an episode. My roommates are planning a court. We're talking about black ladies. I gotta send you that one. I send you your personal, but. Oh, Naomi Campbell is not taking any risks and wore a full hazmat suit. Airport. That's a little much. You know, there's probably a healthcare worker that needs that suit, Naomi. So next week, what we're going to go through is we're going to talk about women in sports and politics. Because yes. these are basically all the historical newsworthy women that are not just there to entertain, but because they're good at shit and they also get shit. Yeah, that and we could, like I said, we could go on for days of recording time about the influence of black women in media of women in stem um and next week again women in sports you don't think we're going to mention uh the u.s women's soccer team again we're going Um, to mention nyla rose again we're going to mention simone biles again uh we're going to mention a ton of people we mentioned last season again because they're that important and it's women history's women's history month so you're going to have to just listen. Yep. And you can enjoy it if you want but you're going to learn something. That's the plan. Right. Yes. Enjoying it is optional. Learning is mandatory. So, that wraps it up for this week. Again, contact us. Everything is on our website, xchromosomepodcast.com. Every way every way you want to contact us, we are there. Is that so? Yes. Yeah, contact us, write us Tell us what you think of the episode. If there is a black woman in media that we missed or glossed over or think we should do a little extra excerpt on as a supplemental, send us that. And we cut out a lot because it's like, (laughs) this is going to take forever. We can't. We, yeah. We literally cannot make a show that you, that you will listen to and include all the people we want to include. So let us know who you'd like to know more about. Again, we have a website to make a Pathfinder. Yes, we can make Pathfinders, which is a library term for ways to find more information about people or topics. So let us know what you'd like to know more about, and we will get that information to you. Write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. Write us at xchromosomepodcast.com. Please give me something to do. I might not have a job for a few weeks. Um. (laughs) That being said, my name is Bill. And I'm Noelle. And we all have next chromosome. Craig, get out. Bye. Get out. Goodbye, bot. Craig, bye. Craig, bye. Bill. I'm copying. Hold on. (laughs) Bill, the bot. Just... We All Have an X-Chromosome is an xchromosomepodcast.com production.
Executive Producers are Noelle Dial and Bill Malvesi. Executive Director, Bill Malvesi. Associate Technical Director, Huey Algool. Associate News Director, Brian Grimes. Music by Alpha Riff. Hosted by Noelle Dial and Bill Malvesi.